Happy New Year, race fans. I'm Lockie Mansell, and I'm sure you're all getting pumped for the start of another huge motor racing season. Last year, I recorded a special podcast edition of Checkered Flag Chat to preview the Liquamoli Bathurst 12-hour, and the feedback was so positive, I had no choice but to bring it back this year. A lot of people watching the 12-hour wanted to understand more about how the event's different from the supercar races we all know and love, such as the Bathurst 1000. So once again, I've enlisted GT Racing fanatic Dave Stilwell to help me preview this year's race. We'll examine the exotic machinery that will be conquering the mountain, assess the driver lineups, delve into the strategic aspects of the event, and put in our fearless predictions for the once-around-the-clock marathon. So without any further ado, folks, let the shenanigans begin. Hi Dave, great to have you back on the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast. Now, you wear a lot of hats. I think you've done just about every conceivable motorsport activity. You've driven race cars, you've been an official, you've been a commentator, you've been a category manager, you've worked on technical eligibility for categories as well. Which of your many hats will you be wearing at Bathurst this weekend? Uh, well, I'll only be wearing a hat if it's sunny in race control, Lachlan, because uh, this year I'll be working alongside a massive team of officials uh, in my role as uh, the uh, medical radio communicator for uh, the medical staff around the Mount Panorama circuit. So there'll be a number of people in black and green uh, from Team Medical Australia alongside the people from New South Wales Ambulance um, that'll be there to assist the drivers, crews, and any of the officials if they have any uh, medical issues uh, over the massive uh, five days of the event, because, of course, there's the bump-in day on Wednesday and the four days of uh, racing action. We know that it's a very busy weekend for you, but hopefully, for the sake of all of the drivers, not too busy. But which aspect of the weekend are you most looking forward to? Uh, It's probably a toss-up between uh, watching some of the combined sedans action in the support categories... Uh, because although they're not as quick over an overall lap time, because the cars are not as restricted in terms of horsepower, um, always looking to see who can trip who can trip over 300 kilometres an hour on the speed trap down the mountain straight, sorry, down the Conrad straight, I should say. Uh, but that's probably closely followed up by watching that top 10 shootout when the top 10 Class A GD3 cars can strap on an additional set of tyres, run the cars on low fuel, and just go out there and see what kind of number they can punch out late in the day on Saturday. That's really an absolute ripper time to watch a a race car go around Bathurst. I think a lot of people are looking forward to that, and especially looking forward to seeing just what sort of lap times those outright GT3 cars can achieve when they are unleashed around the mountain. And speaking of GT cars, as always, a good variety of cars at the Bathurst 12-hour, including some new models for the 2019 race. We've got some existing models that have been updated with Evo packages as well, and there are also some cars that are not going to be in the event, but we will be seeing them next year. So, Dave, being the GT fanatic that you are, give us an overview of what we can expect in terms of vehicles for this year's race. Well, this is probably a good time to remind our viewers that Although this event is taking place in 2019, because it takes place before the European seasons commence, uh, there's no balance of performance, which we'll touch on later, or setting the the weights and the restrictor sizes and the ride heights 
uh, and any other performance categorization for new models. So although it's the 2019 event, think of it as a, an epilogue or a, um, um, a follow-up event to the 2018 season. So that's why, although we've just seen the conclusion of the Daytona 24-hour for the IMSA WeatherTech Sportscar Series uh, um, in Florida, and that has seen the debut of a number of new GT3 models, being the Series 2 991 GT3 Porsche, uh, the Evo package on the second-generation Audi R8 LMS, and of course the Evo package on the Lamborghini Huracan and McLaren 720S debuting uh, in IMSA competition. Those cars won't be here this weekend. What we will be seeing are the cars we didn't get to see at the 2018 edition of the ba Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour. So we've got brand new metal, or should I say brand new carbon fiber in the Bentley Continental GT3. That's the second generation car, a very imposing, big, traditional GT Brute, featuring an all new twin turbo aluminium uh, V8 engine up the front, transaxle drive at the rear. And of course, we've got the Evo packages on the Ferrari 488, the Evo package on the BMW M6, and the Evo package on the 991 Series 1 GT3R, which is some aerodynamic tweaks to the front bumper and the uh, the front bonnet or the um, the non-engine cover as it is on the 911s. So Bentley here with uh, with new new cars really wanting to put on a show. And in fact, this actually caught out the team from MPC uh, who look after the Audi customer sport operation. They've got brand new cars coming for the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour that got delayed in shipping. But because they're brand new uh, Evo package specification cars that rolled out of the Audi Sport factory, they've actually had to convert them back into 2018 specification, basically take all the Evo bits off them and make sure that they're as per the 2018 homologation before they present them for scrutineering because they don't want to get tripped up because, oh, this bolt was an M8 bolt in 2018, it's an M6 bolt in 2019 and they didn't swap the bolts over. So a lot of work going on uh, and of course, in the 2020 edition of the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour, that's when we'll see a lot more new metal and carbon debut. So we'll see that new McLaren, we'll see the Evo package, Lamborghinis and Huracans, which of course are sister cars under the skin. And of course, uh, um, we may even see an Evo package, or should I say a, a second generation Nismo R35 GTR. Although we have some R35 uh, Nismo Nissan GTRs here this weekend, um, we don't have the second generation car on the track. Good opportunity, I think, Dave, for us to explain the difference between the GT3 formula and some of the Formula A that we're used to here in Australia, like the Virgin Australia Supercars Championship, which is what we describe as a control category that runs to a parity formula. So we know that there's Holdens and Fords and Nissans in the field, but they're all controlled so they all run on control chassis even though the body panels might be different the engines yes they run holden ford and nissan engines but they are all built to very very tight technical regulations which means that they have very similar horsepower and power delivery characteristics and everything else particularly the aerodynamics it's all been controlled to ensure that the cars are as close to identical in their performance as they can be so that the main determining factor is the drivers and how well the team set the cars up. GT3 on the other hand runs to a balance of performance formula 
which means that the cars can still retain their DNA. So engines, aero packages, all of those sorts of things um, are still unique to the individual vehicles. But the balance of performance formula is set up so that while the cars might have strengths and weaknesses in different parts of the circuit or at different circuits, their lap times should end up being pretty similar. And at Bathurst, we've had some great races in the 12-hour in the past where there's been some cars that have been quick up and down the mountain, up Mountain Straight and down Conrod Straight, but might have been a bit slower over the top. And conversely, some cars that have got better corner speed uh, but might not have such good performance in a straight line. And then there's other factors like fuel economy and a fuel range that are variable between the cars as well. So what you might like to do, Dave, is just explain the types of BOP measures that can be implemented to make sure that the car's performances are kept fairly similar. Well, the first thing to point out is that uh, we often hear a word called homologation. So that's an FIA word that refers to uh, basically specifying and setting out the characteristics, the dimensions, and a lot of the minutiae detail of how the car is presented. We go through a homologation or a specification process for our Virgin Australia Supercars Championship. Obviously, the base chassis comes from pace, and as you said, the category aero kit goes on top. But the teams have a huge degree of freedom in terms of how they prepare the cars. If they want to change from King to an I-Bark spring or an H&R spring, change the spring rate and the spring length, they can change that. They can design their own complete anti-roll bar systems. If they want to change switches, if they want to change wire gauges, they can make any change they want from race to race to race, providing that it's within the parameters permitted in the uh, V8 supercar technical specifications for the new generation car. For a GD3 car, there's only one builder of every single GD3 car homologated model. So Audi Sport is the only manufacturer that makes the Audi R8 LMS. Uh, Lamborghini Squadra Corsa is the only manufacturer that makes the Lamborghini Huracan. Uh, Bentley, through Team N Sport, is the only manufacturer of the Bentley Continental. And every single one that they put out is identical because it has to comply with everything that's in that homologation document. So if you want to run a different spring in your Bentley Continental or your Porsche 911 GT3R, you can only run one of the myriad springs that's in the homologation document. You can only run the brake discs that are specified in the homologation document. You can't even move any of the switches on the switch panels if they're homologated and that's what they have to tell you what they can run. What that allows the FIA through the SRO and their balance of performance process is they can test all the cars in a, uh, a, a stable environment. So they use the Ledoux testing circuit in France with a series of control drivers who are picked by the SRO. They do a lot of blind testing um, with control situation for the tyres and the temperatures, and they work out a way of accommodating the fact that, say, an Aston Martin, our swan song for the V12 Vantage, has a big six-litre normally aspirated engine up the front of the car. Co contrast that with a turbo V8 McLaren or a uh, normally aspirated uh, V10 Lamborghini or Audi with it mid-mounted up against a flat six four-litre uh, mounted rearward of the rear axle in the Porsche 911. Very different roof lines, very different uh, frontal areas, very different engine displacements, different fuel tanks. And of course, if you've got a car that cuts through the air much more efficiently and uses less horsepower, it can go further on 100 litres of fuel. So what they might do is they might restrict the 
fuel capacity for each car for a stint. They changed the restrictor size for the fuel going into the car to try to balance the cars out over the course of a stint. And then over the course of a lap, they'll try to adjust things like ride heights to make sure that uh, if the car is very, very slippery, they might raise it up off the ground to reduce its aerodynamic efficiency. Uh, they might increase the minimum weight the car has to carry. That's weight you have to accelerate up, up a hill. It's also weight you have to brake, and it's weight you have to control in a corner, which affects how the tyre wears. Uh, they control what size tyre the car can wear from the multitude different uh, control tyre manufacturers in the series. This weekend, we're running with the uh, Pirelli uh, GT tyre. Uh, and then things like, we, even with the turbocharged engines now, we used to uh, control the amount of horsepower they could produce by using a sonic air restrictor. You've probably seen these in a lot of turbocharged cars. It looks like a, almost like a, a throttle body trumpet mounted straight into the front of the turbocharger and restricting the amount of air that can go through. We've moved away from that now with very advanced category data loggers, which only permit a certain amount of boost pressure in the intake manifolds at certain RPM ranges because it uh, makes the engines more efficient but also allows much tighter control and less stress to be put on a lot of the powertrain. And those figures can be adjusted from time to time, from year to year. You can actually go onto the FIA website and download the 2018 specification BOP. That's the baseline um, specification for the cars, so minimum weights, sonic restrictors, ride heights, uh, and then different series will put different uh, adjustments on that depending upon what type of circuits they go to. As we know, Lachlan, Mount Panorama is a very unique circuit with a significant amount of straight line running, but also it has a very fast section across the top. So you can't really use a, uh, a BOP formula like you might use at Monza, which of course is very, very fast almost the entire lap, but you'd use a very different BOP if you're running on a short circuit, say, um, something like the Cirque de, uh, de Catalunya in Barcelona. So uh, full credit to the SRO, uh, their technical uh, team working with the team from Supercars. There'll be representatives from both organisations at the circuit on the weekend, constantly monitoring the MoTeC BOP loggers that are in every car to make sure that the BOP is working effectively in the way that they want it. And one critical note that's in the technical regulations for the category is that the uh, category or the event managers reserve the right to make changes up to and including the start of the race. So if they find that someone's been sandbagging or they uh, had something that for some reason they're a lot faster or a lot slower than where they expected them to be, they can make adjustments on the fly to allow everyone to compete because that's what this is about is that we don't want people spending millions and millions of dollars developing cars in an open rulebook format because everyone would just go away. This is the least worst compromise that we, we have for sports car racing. And you can see by the success of GD3 that it's working. Huge amount of manufacturers involved, a lot of customer support, and the cars can be used in series all around the world with very little change, often just stickers, tyres, tyre pressures, maybe some driver cooling equipment. And I think the key thing there is the diversity of manufacturers as well. And Richard Crail wrote an excellent article on the Race Talk website. Crailsy, of course, one of the commentators and also the media manager for the Bathurst 12-hour. And his argument was that if the balance of performance system wasn't there, or if it didn't work effectively, then you would find that if one manufacturer became dominant, everybody would gravitate to that manufacturer 
and all of the other manufacturers would be driven out of the category, which is not what we want. We want the variety and diversity that we have where all of the cars have got a chance of winning the race given the right circumstances. And I think we do have a pretty good spread of competitiveness across the different cars. So well explained there, Dave. And for all of you propeller heads out there, um, I think you would have enjoyed Dave's explanation. For those of you casual viewers, there's a bit of in-depth information about exactly how they go about balancing the performance and equalising the performance across all of the GT3 cars. What we're going to do now is take a break on this Bathurst 12-hour preview edition of the Checkered Flag Chat podcast. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the specific entries, the drivers and the cars in the field. Back soon. This Checkered Flag Chat podcast is copyright Checkered Flag Media and is for personal use only. Any publication or rebroadcast of this program without the written permission from Checkered Flag Media is strictly prohibited. Hi, I'm Dylan O'Keefe. You're listening to the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview. You've downloaded the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast. Dave Stilwell joining myself, Lockie Mansell, and talking you through everything you need to know for this year's Liquid Only Bathurst 12-hour. Let's have a look at the entry list now. And the Bathurst 12-hour, it is described as an international event. And when you look at the driver roster, you can see why. A total of 20 different nationalities represented. We've got 52 drivers from Australia 14 from Germany, 12 from the UK, 7 from France, 5 from the USA and New Zealand, 4 from the Netherlands, 3 from Switzerland, Italy and Norway, 2 from Denmark, South Africa, Belgium, Japan and Canada, and then 1 each from Brazil, Portugal, Austria, Spain and China. So, again... Diversity of manufacturers, but also a diversity of countries that are going to be represented in this year's Bathurst 12 hour. There are four classes in total. Class A is split up into three subclasses depending on driver classifications, which we'll get to shortly. There are 28 cars in Class A. Class B, three cars, all GT3 Cup Porsches. Class C for the GT4 cars has a six-car entry. And then Class I, the Invitational class, where we see the marked cars has four cars. The total field size, 41 cars for 2019. It's not the biggest field that we've seen at the Bathurst 12-hour day, but when you look at the depth of driver talent, I think there's an argument to be raised for it being the highest quality field of drivers that we've ever seen conquering the mountain. Like a lot of things in life, Lachlan, uh, it's always good to prefer quality over quantity. That being said, I have had some people tell me that after a while... Quantity does tend to take on a quality of its own. What you don't want, though, and we have seen it a couple of times, particularly, I think, 2015 in the Bathurst 12-hour, when there were 20 safety cars, you can actually get to a point where if the field becomes too big you start to get a lot of incidents, particularly when you've got big speed differentials between the fastest and the slowest cars in the field, and that can actually affect the quality of the racing. I reckon that forty, anywhere between 40 to 45 cars is about the perfect number because it's enough cars to make it interesting, but it's not too many that you're going to have lots of incidents and lots of safety cars. Yeah, and I think it's good that the organisers have continued to have the variety in the race, so we've seen some of the major uh, international endurance epics uh, kind of condense themselves down to fewer and fewer classes over the year. The total 24 hours of Spa that's part of the Blanc Pain Endurance Series and also one of the next stops on the Intercontinental GT Challenge. Uh, 
um, that's basically just become a GT3 or a GT3 equivalent speed race. You know, the GT4 cars and the Invitational cars are no longer there. So I think that does put a lot of emphasis or a lot of pressure on the um, the subclass A cars to make sure that they're really, really focusing on managing traffic. So particularly those cars in, in GT4 that will be the slowest cars out there, probably lap times somewhere between 2 minutes 15 to 2 minutes 25, uh, they'll really have to be keeping an eye on their mirrors because uh, some of these Class A GT3 cars will come up on them very, very quickly. Yeah, there could be a 15 to 20 second difference in lap times between the fastest and the slowest cars in the field. And ultimately, the responsibility is on the faster cars. And Dave, you and I know both having participated in endurance races that while the onus is on the faster cars to safely negotiate a way through the slower traffic, the slower cars have to be careful not to unnecessarily impede the faster cars as well. So, yes, okay, the ultimate responsibility is with the faster cars, but the slower cars do have their part to play too. It's what we talk about. There is an art of overtaking, but there is also an art of being overtaken. Unfortunately, when we're race drivers and we pull the helmet on, the red mist descends, and a lot of that sensibility can tend to get squished out of the brain. What are you talking um, about, Dave? Whenever I get behind the wheel of a car, I'm always sensible. Absolutely, Lachlan. That's why your XL came back with every single corner on it immaculate. Uh, but particularly for the, 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 the slower class cars, so the class B and C cars, um, they'll really have to just be aware that they're not racing the class A cars. They're not trying to beat them. They're just trying to beat the other cars in their class. Um, what we do tend to see issues occur is cars that have got very different performance characteristics to the Class A cars. I'm thinking more specifically the uh, the Class I Mark cars, which have got unrestricted V8s, um, make a lot of horsepower and very quick up and down the hill. Um, be interesting to see how those cars go because they do accelerate off the corner pretty much as quick as a GT3 car and they're quicker in a straight line, terminal speed. One of the things that we don't have in the 12-hour this year, or, or two of the cars that we don't have, the Daytona and the Dodge Viper that both ran in the Invitational class last year. Now, the Daytona in particular was wicked fast in a straight line. In fact, it was the fastest out of any of the cars on the mountain by, I think, somewhere in the magnitude of about 20 k's an hour in top speed down Conrod Strait. And some of the GT3 drivers were actually complaining about the fact that the Daytona would drive past them in a straight line, but then because it didn't have anywhere near the aero, that was nowhere near as quick across the top. So some of the GT3 cars would actually get held up or find themselves in a bit of an awkward situation if they were racing in or around that Daytona. Not going to be an issue this year because the Daytona... Maybe a bit unfortunately, given that it's been one of the iconic cars of the race over the last few years, is not participating. Well, Richard Bendell, who's the uh, the brains and the and the the drive behind the Daytona Sports Cars team, uh, the Daytona effectively a a replica of the Shelby Daytona Coupe. So it's basically got the wheelbase and the track of an MGB Roadster with about 600 or 700 horsepower under the bonnet. Um, with nowhere near the amount of tyre that a GT3 car would run, and as you say, Lachlan, nowhere near the amount of aerodynamic downforce. Um, certainly very slippery in a straight line, but that doesn't make it very quick in the corners. Uh, he's moved on to a new project, so he's now the importer for the SIN range of cars from Eastern Europe. So I had a chance to race against one of those in the uh, production sports car races 
uh, down at Phillip Island. So looking to see how that project progresses and maybe we'll see them come back as an invitational entry or perhaps even as a GT4 entry in the future. All right, let's turn our attention back to Class A, though, for the outright cars. And as mentioned, it's split up into three subclasses. So we've got the Pro cars, which are all seeded drivers, either platinum or gold in the FIA driver rankings. There's 15 Pro cars. Then you've got the Pro-Am cars, and they can run either three or four drivers. In the case of the three driver teams, one of the drivers has to be a bronze ranks driver, In the case of the four-driver teams, two of the drivers have to be ranked bronze. There's 12 cars in the Pro-Am class. And then in the Am class, which is for all bronze drivers, just the single car. All right, let's get into the specifics of the entry list and we'll run through the cars in alphabetical order, which means we start off with a car that's having its swan song at Mount Panorama, the Aston Martin V12 Vantage. Last time we saw an Aston Martin in action at the mountain, didn't end too well. That was in 2017 when the Meadecky Stone Motorsport team ran the car for Ashley Walsh, George Meadecky and Tony Bates. And after some exhaust fume issues early in the race, they ultimately retired when Meadecky went into the wall at Hell Corner at about the three-hour mark. So fans of the Aston Martin brand will be hoping that the two cars have a bit better run this time around. One of the cars has a very strong lineup of young guns Three drivers who've starred in international open wheel categories, including GP3 and the old Formula Renault 3.5 series from the UK. It's Jake Dennis from France, Matteo Vavier, and from Germany, Marvin Kirchhofer. Then in the second car, the only AM car in the field, we have Florian Kamelga. We also have Andreas Bainziger, Peter Lemus, and Matt Parry. Dave, how do you see the Aston Martin's fortunes faring? Well, again, farewell to that glorious, normally aspirated V12. Uh, The second generation V8, uh, turbo V8 powered V8 Vantage, um, will be making its uh, international debut in the Blancpain series and also uh, in the IMSA GTD category shortly. Uh, But of course, we do love a... No one one has ever said, I hate the sound of a normally aspirated V12. Um, We have seen a V12 Vantage on the outright podium before, if you remember that crazy finish to the 2015 edition of the race. Um, although the Aston Martin is a tried and tested package, a lot of the endurance quirks have been worked out of it. Uh, Aston Martin and ProDrive, very good at uh, building a lot of endurance and repairability and maintenance ability into the car. The last time the car was updated, though, was 2016 or 2017. So um, I have to say it's probably going to be outclassed performance-wise compared to some of the later generation cars um, and particularly those young guns. There's only so much learning you can do on a simulator to acclimatise the Bathurst. As far as I'm aware, they're all three of them the Bathurst rookies, so um, they're in for a bit of a shock when they do their track walk on Thursday. They are, but as mentioned, they're extremely talented as demonstrated by their achievements overseas in open wheelers so yeah it might take them a bit of time to come to grips with the track but watch out for them in the race that's my prediction from aston martin we move to the manufacturer that's been the most successful in the 12 hour in the gt era and that's audi unfortunately no entry from our defending race winners which were robin Fryns, stuart leonard and dregs vantor in that red flag affected finish that we had to last year's race however Still, a star-studded lineup of Audis 
five in the field in total. We have Christopher Haas and Christopher Mays and Marcus Winklehock in the number two Audi Sport Team Valvoline entry. In the number 22 Audi Sport Team Valvoline entry, it's Garth Tander. Might not be racing full-time in the supercars anymore, but he will be quick in the 12-hour. He'll be joined by Kelvin Vanderlinder, the former winner of the Nürburgring 24-hour, and also Frederick Verveesh. Then we have Mark Saini, one of the enduring gentleman drivers in Australian motorsport. He's going to be joined by Lee Holdsworth and Dean Fiore in the Hallmark entry. Three British drivers in car number three, which is also being run out of the Melbourne Performance Centre, Pete Story, being joined by a couple of British touring car chaps in Matt Neal and Gordon Shannon, and then rounding out the field in a Matt Stone racing run, Aussie driver search backed out of Yar race, Todd Hazelwood, and he's going to be partnered by David Russell, the driver who's had lots of endurance racing experience, and uh, one of the better gentleman drivers in Australia in Roger Largo. Dave, which of those Audis do you see coming out on top? Or I, you would be hard-pressed to pick the difference between uh, a GT3 with GT, Garth Tander on board, and, of course, the Haas of Mies and Winkelhock combination. Uh, both pro entries, both very, very strong. I think between those two, it'll just come down to pit strategy and who stays out of trouble. Um, we've seen with the Audis, um, they've desperately tried to uh, win the race again, particularly the... Uh, the Melbourne Performance Centre Audis, they really, really want to win. Uh, interesting, as you mentioned, as you said, the, uh, there's no international cars here, but that's one of the uh, key points behind the Intercontinental GT Challenge that the SRO is organising, is that the manufacturer can nominate some of their local teams and their local drivers as their manufacturer representative. In this case, Audis obviously nominated those two pro cars for Audi Sport Team Valvoline. As we mentioned, um, uh, the two McLaughlin-owned cars, brand new for the 2019 season. Um, as we mentioned, converted back to 2018 specification for the race. I think definitely watch out for the three Pro-Am uh, Audis in the race, particularly the uh, Cini, Holdsworth and Fiori car. Um, all drivers with a lot of experience around the mountain. Uh, very well-sorted car. Uh, and, of course, Roger Largo. Uh, we've seen him running quite a lot in a Lamborghini traditionally. So interesting to see how his switch to the sister Audi specification uh, V10 mid-engine car is going to go for them. But I think definitely uh, Pro-Am podium for the Cini Holdsworth Fiori car, absolutely. And outright contenders, definitely the two pro Audis. One of the characteristics of the Audi has been that it's been really quick over the top, but maybe hasn't quite had the straight line speed of some of the other cars in previous Bathurst 1000s. And I remember, you think back a couple of years ago, I think to 2016, Lawrence Vantor was quite vocal complaining about the fact that the Audi just did not have the straight line speed to get past other cars. He'd be miles quicker over the top of the mountain. The problem with that, you can't really pass people over the top of the mountain, but it does seem with some of the balance of performance adjustments that they've made since that the Audi's a bit of a friendlier race car than maybe what it's been in the past, and that was demonstrated last year, obviously, because it was able to win the race. So it'll be interesting to see how they go in race trim. Probably the other point that's worth making in regards to the Audi's, Dave, is the fact that the Melbourne Performance Centre... Their workload has increased markedly over the last couple of years, and it's only going to increase because as well as running in marquee events like the Bathurst 12-hour and rounds of the Australian GT Championship, they've also been running customer programs for drivers like Matt Stupas and Rio Nagara 
in some of the feeder or lower level GT series like the GT1 Australia category. Uh, but not only that, they're also going to be running some TCR cars in the brand new TCR Australia series in 2019. Yeah, definitely a lot of work for uh, um, Lee and Troy at uh, MPC. Brand new premises in the east of Melbourne for those guys. They just had nowhere near enough space for their um, their current level of customers, let alone what they're looking like for the future. Uh, TCR, the cars we probably might see, yes, no, maybe, not sure, uh, in an invitational or a, an additional class in the Bathurst 12-hour in the future. Um, those are two-litre turbocharged front-wheel drive touring cars, a very similar model to GD3. They use a balanced performance formula, but through their connections with Audi, uh, the Melbourne Performance Centre has been appointed as the distributor and customer support organisation for all of the Volkswagen Audi Group brands that compete in TCR. So that'll be the Volkswagen Golf TCR, the uh, Audi RS3 LMS TCR car, as well as the uh, Seat Leon Cupra. From Audi, we move to a manufacturer that's got a couple of brand new cars on the mountain. It's the Bentley Team M Sport Operation, and they're going to be running a pair of the latest Bentley Continental GT3s. The previous cars attracted a big following from fans at the Bathurst 12-hour, and I reckon the new cars look pretty spectacular as well, especially in the photos. Their driver lineup: they've got Jules Guignon, Stephen Kane, and Jordan Pepper in the first of their cars. The second of their cars will be shared by Vincent Abril, Andy Suchek, and Maxime Soule. Dave... One of the things that we've seen with the previous incarnation of the Bentleys was that they didn't necessarily qualify all that well, but on race day, they generally had a way of working their way forward, and they would always be there or thereabouts towards the end, and they picked up a couple of podium finishes in 2016 and 2017. Probably hard for us to predict exactly how they're going to go with the new model cars, but uh, how do you see their attack panning out? Well, Lachlan, I think if you look at the performance of Bentley Team M Sport at this race in the past, they've certainly put a lot of effort into it. Malcolm Wilson, uh, in a a recent interview in Auto Action, a great feature you can pick up at leading news agents, uh, great preview for the race as well. Uh, He's at pains to point out that when the team from Bentley approached him to run this program, he had to learn a lot about GT3 and GT racing and two of the events that he wants to win is the Spa 24-hour, and they came oh so close to winning it in 2018. Um, some unfortunate uh, mishaps uh, waylaid their cars in the race there, and they've tried and tried and tried to win the Bathurst 12-hour um, for several years, and they've come away with podiums, but it's bittersweet when you never stand on the top step of the podium. Their cars had 12 months, over 12 months of development, both before its 2018 debut in the Blanc Pain Endurance Series, as well as all that racing mileage they've had under their belts. Um, they come back, renewed vigour, uh, cars with a pretty, uh, as far as I'm aware, it's, it's pretty much the same driver lineup that they've had the last couple of years. So they've got a lot of drivers that know the circuit, um, they know the cars, uh, and they will be there with the bit between their teeth. And, of course, they'll have the crowd pulling for them because everyone loves a big V8 big V8 front engine car and boy if, if this one sounds as good as the last one that it did um, they'll win even more fans in the 2019 edition the Bathurst 12 hour it's one of those events where you can play the game pick the exhaust note or pick the car by the sound of the exhaust note get your best friend to face away from the track and try and work out what sort of cars going past just based on how it sounds 
and the Bentley is one that's pretty distinctive compared to all of the others. So from a manufacturer that's had a good record in the race but maybe not such a good record in qualifying, we go to a manufacturer that's actually had a pretty good record in qualifying in the last couple of years at the Bathurst 12 Hour, was on pole last year but hasn't been able to put it together in the race and that's BMW with its M6 GT3. Two cars, two BMWs, the BMW, the Walken Horse Motorsport entry for Nick Katzberg, Mikkel Jensen and Christian Krohns. That's the first of them. The second one is the BMW Team Schnitzer entry, which will see Chaz Mostert being joined by a couple of international drivers in Gusto Farfus and Martin Tomsic. And Chaz was the dominant early race leader last year, but got tangled up in a bit of an unnecessary incident. Um, in the midway stages of the race, which ultimately put his car out of last year's event. And unfortunately as well, Dave got tangled up with one of his teammates in the Bathurst 1000. So you would have to say... At in the fact, same corner. Uh, yeah, actually, on, on the exit of Hell Corner. Uh, sorry, Forrest Elbow. Um, that's a good point. And in fact, you would have to say, Dave, that since his spectacular and dramatic win in the 2014 Bathurst 1000, the mountain's not been all that kind to Chaz. No, and unfortunately, and, I'm, and I believe that Chaz has put his hand up for this in the past, it's been down to, he's got so much pressure on him to try to repeat that performance um, that just little mistakes have crept in. And I think particularly as we've seen through the course of 2018, a very challenging season with Tickford Racing, uh, scattered some international GT appearances, both in an M6 in the Asian Le Mans series, as well as the BMW M8 in the IMSA WeatherTech series. So Petit Le Mans last year, not a bad, uh, not a bad performance. Finished third in the GT Le Mans class at uh, the 10-hour race in at Road Atlanta. Not a bad for a guy who'd never driven the car before. And then, of course, gone back to uh, Daytona and uh, unfortunately teamed up with Alex Zanardi. Some technical issues with the steering wheel swap put them down several laps, but uh, some good running in GT Machinery. So he's currently flying his way back from Florida to, uh, to Sydney to uh, go attack the mountain, but I think Chaz definitely has a point to prove. Uh, BMW, of course, debuting the Evo package of the M6 this year um, with new boost adjustments and different aero on the car. So definitely looking forward to seeing what uh, Walkenhurst, of course, had an accident in practice or qualifying, I think, a year or two ago, and uh, this is their chance to come back. And, of course, there'll be a lot of good feeling within the paddock uh, to try and see a team schnitzer car do well uh, at an international endurance race after the recent untimely passing after a short illness of uh, Charlie Lamb, who was the uh, team manager for so many years. I mean, I even remember seeing a TV special on him from uh, back when he was out in the World Touring Car Championship years of you know 1987, 1990, coming out to do international endurance races under the Group A format. So... Um, rest in peace, Charlie. Um, there'll be a lot of people uh, pulling on a black arm, armband for you uh, in the BMW pits. And, of course, uh, there'll be a lot of good feeling to try and see Schnitzer uh, get get a victory at, uh, at Mount Panorama. And they did get a victory in the GT LM class at the Daytona 24-hour. So that was good to see as a tribute to Charlie Lamb. Ferrari, a brand that is iconic in worldwide sports car racing, be it endurance racing for GT cars or Formula One, um, and also an aspirational road car as well. 
No Ferraris competed in the Bathurst 12-hour last year, so good to see them back this year. There are two of them. We've got the Hub Auto Corsa entry. Tim Slade and Nick Perkett, the drivers who we normally see behind the wheel of Brad Jones Racing. Commodores in supercars, they're in that car. They're going to be joined by the 2015 Porsche Carrera Cup Australia champion, Nick Foster. Good to see him back racing in Australia. And then the second of the Ferraris being run by the Spirit of the Race team that also fielded an entry in the Daytona 24-hour. Paul Dallalana, the gentleman racer from Canada, he's going to be joined in that car by Pedro Lamy and Matthias Lauda. Out of the two Ferraris, obviously the pro entry of Foster Slade and Perkett you would expect to go well. But Tim Slade in particular, Dave, he needs a change of luck. He's been at the Bathurst 1000 in cars that in a lot of situations have had good speed but hasn't been able to get a result. Last year he and Ashley Walsh, they had lots of problems in the lead up to the race and then race day didn't go their way either. So let's hope that Slade Dog can have a bit of luck turning his way. Well, I think having Tim and Nick in the car together is a good fit. Um, they're both young, they're both hungry, and I think Nick Foster, a lot of international GT experience. We've also seen Tim, a bit like uh, Chaz Mostert, has made a couple of trips overseas to race in some GT racing, be it uh, Blanc Pain GT, GT Asia, Asian Le Mans, um, with that Ferrari, so he's got a bit of mileage under his belt. And, of course, Nick Perkat will be looking to uh, make amends for the last time he was at the race in a mid-engined Italian exotic. Of course, uh, didn't make it past uh, Griffin's Bend uh, in the last time that he uh, took to Mount Panorama. Correct. He got tangled up in an incident. He was driving a Lamborghini that year, and he got tangled up in an incident with Mika Salo, which basically put both of those cars out of contention after just two corners of a 12-hour race, which is not what you need in a long-distance endurance race. As uh, Neil Cropton so famously said, in an endurance race, it's all about buying a ticket to the last hour. And while you might not, you certainly can't win the race on the first lap, but you can certainly lose it. And uh, that's what happens to Nick Perkett in the 2016 edition of the Bathurst 12 Hour. Um, a manufacturer that's not had that much success at Bathurst is Lamborghini. And even in the Australian GT Championship, their latest car. The Huracan has not really had any results of note. In fact, the older model Gallardo has been the one that's had most of the success in terms of GC racing here in Australia. But the Huracan has had some good results overseas, and there will be two of them competing in the Bathurst 12 hour this year. The first of them will be run by the Trofeo Motorsport Organisation, and it will be driven by Dean Canto, Jim Manolis, Ivan Capelli, the former Ferrari Formula One driver. And Ryan Millier was supposed to drive with the team, but his driver ranking got upgraded from bronze to silver, which makes him no longer eligible. So they've had to source Ben Porter as his replacement for the weekend. And then in the second of the Lambos, which will be run by Wall Racing, we have Tony D'Alberto and Cam McConville, and they'll be joined by Jules Westwood from the UK and Adrian Dietz, who is the very much the AM driver in that car. Saw some photos of the livery of the D'Alberto, McConville, Dietz and Westwood car, Dave, and uh, I, I still don't quite know what to make of it because, quite frankly, it looks like a car that's got big targets painted on both sides of it and on the roof. Uh, yes, that livery has been seen before in black and white, 
Um, but I think, as you mentioned, uh, some questions will be raised as to why you would want to try to get race, race drivers getting target fixation on you when you're just trying to finish the race. This is another one of the... It looks it actually looks it psychedelic, and I reckon maybe their secret strategy here is they're hoping that all of the other drivers in the race will look at the car and get so dizzy that they go out of control and crash. And previously, when they ran the black and white livery, I think they were hoping that they could park it on the racing track at a right angle to the track direction, and uh, all of the other cars would stop to wait for pedestrians to cross the road. I think that's a bit unfair, Lachlan. But as you mentioned, uh, Lamborghini now has appointed Trofeo Motorsport as their customer support organisation in Australia. Um, They've also imported one of the Super Trofeo versions of these cars that will run in the Australian GT Championship as well. This is one of the cars that, once it's done with the race, will have the 2018 bodywork and components pulled off it and have the 2019 Evo kit bolted onto it for the GT Championship. Uh, I think solid contenders for... uh, um, the GT3 Pro-Am category. Um, I think it just comes down to the strength of the uh, of the AM drivers and how well they can keep up the pace and then also staying out of trouble. Um, these cars will probably end up a couple of laps down off the leaders by the time we get to the end of the 12 hours. Um, it'll just be a case of m- managing the mistakes, keeping the lap times consistent and, of course, uh, staying out of trouble for 12 hours. I agree with you on that, but by staying out of trouble, you can work your way into a good result, especially in a race as long as the 12-hour. And last year, we saw that the Trofeo Motorsport car ended up coming in the top 10. In fact, the last two years, I think they finished in the top 10 in the 12-hour just by adopting that cautious stay-out-of-trouble methodology. So another manufacturer that uh, has had success at the Bathurst 12-hour is McLaren, but there's only one of them in the race this year, and this is another model of vehicle that's having its swan song, I think you would have to say, and that's the McLaren 650S of the objective racing team. Tony Walls, the AM driver, he's going to be joined by Warren Luff, a driver who knows a thing or two about racing around Mount Panorama, and Andrew Watson, who is a factory McLaren driver, the last hurrah for the 650S in the Bathurst 12-hour. Look, the McLaren situation's uh, now got some more clarity around it. Uh, Originally, the MP412C, the predecessor to the 650S, and the 650S itself, as well as the 570S, the GT4 car that we've seen running occasionally in Australia. Those are all developed on behalf of McLaren by company called CRS Racing, which became known as McLaren GT. Um, that relationship came to an end with the 650S, and McLaren has now brought the production, management, and customer support of the new car, the 720S, in-house to McLaren Automotive. Um, some awkward court case uh, uh, documentation uh, was dealt with in the UK just recently, which resolved that in favour of McLaren. Um, so the, one of the reasons you'll see a, a lower car count for McLaren is just there was a lot of uncertainty around the customer support side of things. Um, McLaren has made efforts with the new car to address that, and we've seen the, uh, the new 720S debuted and was quite competitive in the, uh, in the golf endurance race. I believe it was an 8-hour or a 12-hour. Uh, pardon me for not knowing that. Um, and that was running quite well until a, a suspension failure and, of course, we saw that car debut in the Daytona 24-hour as well. So a car that uh, was well-liked, uh, 
was great to see in the hands of Shane Van Gisbergen back at his time at Techno Autosport. But of course, uh, everyone will be rubbing their hands together waiting for the new 720S for 2019. The McLaren does hold a couple of important records for the Bathurst 12-hour, the fastest lap in qualifying and in the race for the Bathurst 12-hour, both of those records being set by Shane Van Gisbergen. And we're going to grab a break here on Check and Flag Chat. And during the break, we're going to find out about more of the fun facts for the Bathurst 12-hour. Did you know... No doubt last year's Bathurst 12-hour was a prime example of why we love endurance racing so much and why it unfortunately finished under red flag conditions and also broke a few records. There were more different leaders than any previous 12-hour. The lead changed no less than 25 times between 12 different cars and no one led for more than 31 laps in a row. Not only that, seven cars finished on the lead lap eclipsing the previous record of five in 2014 and 2016. And here are some other essential Bathurst 12-hour stats. The largest ever field seen for the race was a whopping 55 cars in 1992. The distance record for the 12-hour was 297 laps set in 2016. Just to give you an idea, that's a total of 1,841 k's, about the distance by road from Melbourne in Victoria all the way up to Maryborough between the Sunshine Coast and Bundaberg in Queensland. Imagine trying to drive that distance in 12 hours. On the other hand, the shortest distance for the race is 202 laps in 2010, and that was the race that was famously stopped to remove a tree that had fallen across Conrod Strait. When it comes to fast lap times, Shane Van Gisbergen is the man. The Flying Kiwi holds both the qualifying and race records set in 2016. Safety cars are an omnipresent factor at the Bathurst 12-hour with an average of just over 11 appearances per race. The record for the most safety cars was 20 in the 2015 event. John Bow is the most successful 12-hour driver, as well as his Bathurst victories in 2010 and 2014, JV also won a 12-hour race at Eastern Creek now known as Sydney Motorsport Park, in 1995. Nine different manufacturers have won the 12-hour. Toyota, Mazda, Mitsubishi, BMW, Audi, Mercedes-Benz, Ferrari, Nissan and McLaren. And finally, at risk of being thrown into the naughty corner by the 12-hour media crew, yes, Crailsy, I'm looking at you, the race record is 12 hours and 5.9576 seconds set by Rod Salmon, Damian White and Tony Longhurst in 2009. They're the drivers who have got closest to the 12-hour mark at the finish. You're listening to the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast with Dave Stilwell and Lockie Mansell analysing all of the cars in the field for you as we count down to the 2019 edition of the Liquamoli Bathurst 12 hours. Some interesting stats there that I came across in my research there, Dave. And um, yeah, the race record one, crazy. Everybody else still don't believe me when I say that it's a race record, but I reckon there has to be some sort of accolade for getting as close as you can to the 12-hour mark. Lachlan, awarding a race record for a timed race would be like awarding a distance record for 
a distance race, that'd be like saying, well, you know, Chaz Mostert holds the distance record for the Bathurst 1000 because he won it from the furthest place down the grid. So he actually covered the longest distance in the in the 161 laps of the event <laughs> actually that's a good point i hadn't thought about that but oh no what have i unleashed <laughs> well done i'll remember that one for when we get to the bathurst 1000 this year so on a more serious note though we do still have quite a few cars to get through we'll move on to the mercedes and uh in fact the three-pointed star is the most well-represented manufacturer in terms of numbers in the Class A field because there are six Mercedes AMG GT3s with a variety of Pro and Pro-Am combinations. We've got in one of the Black Falcon entries, Mark Griffith, who's a fairly well-known gentleman racer here in Australia. He's going to be joined by Christina Nielsen, who was actually the first female to win an IMSA WeatherTech series in the GT Daytona class, and uh, also sliding into that car, Yelma Berman, who we saw winning in the Dubai 24-hour last year. Also in a Mercedes, we have Kenny Havel, who was a runner-up in last year's race. He's going to be joined by Tristan Vortier and Thomas Jaeger. Jaeger, a former Bathurst 12-hour winner. We've got Maro Engel, who we saw racing supercars here in Australia for Erebus Motorsport back in 2013 in one of the other Black Falcon. In fact, it's the Craft Bamboo Black Falcon Mercedes AMG. And he'll be joined by Gary Paffett and Lucas Stoltz in that car. Yaza Shahin from the Ben Motorsport Park will be joined by 2017 Bathurst 1000 winners David Reynolds and Luke Yulden in car 777, one of the Scott Taylor Motorsport run cars. One of the cars that's been talked about a lot, it's been run by Scott Taylor Motorsport and also 888, and it sports the team Vodafone, the distinctive orange and chrome livery, Craig Lowndes, Jamie Winkup and Shane Van Gisbergen. And then in the final, Mercedes Benz, another very well-credentialed trio of drivers, Maximilian Book, Raffaele Marcello and Maximilian Gertz. Uh, they're going to be behind the wheel of the 999 entry. So you'd have to say some really, really good driving talent and uh, the car 888 entry, Lowndes, Winkup and Shane Van Gisbergen is probably on paper the pre-race favourite for a lot of people. I think until we see the cars on circuit and we see how the BOP has worked out and how the cars are adjusting to uh, their relative performance and the 2019 specification of Pirelli tyre, I think you want to keep your powder dry but I have a fair suspicion if you were a gambling man Lachlan and you were to uh, visit any one of the myriad uh, sites that can uh, take your money uh, for odds you'd find the shortest odds available in the field is probably on that triple eight car um, Craig Lance has already come out and said he prefers the car to the Ferrari and the Audi he's driven that's probably to be expected given it's more traditional in the sense it's got a front uh, mounted normally aspirated V8 rear wheel drive um, it's one of the heavier cars in the field because it does have so much torque. Um, of course, we've seen the AMG, a very, very uh, robust package, very competitive, and also a big improvement over the first-generation SLS AMG in terms of its friendliness for uh, amateur drivers. I think particularly if you consider there's six AMGs, I think a high hope for AMG would be to put uh, at least one or two cars on the outright podium but also probably to put one or two cars on the Pro-Am podium as well. 
Let's look at some of the other AMGs as well, because the car of Griffith, Nielsen and Berman, that's an interesting one for mine. Not least of all, because Christina Nielsen actually has the chance to become the highest placed female driver in the history of the Bathurst 12-hour. At the moment, that stands with Rahel Frey. She finished in fifth position in the 2014 race when she was teamed up with Lawrence Vantor and Renee Rast in an Audi R8. So it be interesting to see if Nielsen can uh, beat that objective of being the highest placed female in the 12-hour. And also Maximilian Book, he was part of that amazing finish that we saw in the 2014 race where he chased Craig Lowndes all the way to the finish line. And his two co-drivers in Raffaele Marcello and Maximilian Gortz, they're uh, pretty speedy as well. So I think uh, the chances of seeing more than one Mercedes on the podium are quite high when you think about the driving ability across all of the cars in the AMG stable. I think if we were mentioning redemption stories before for Chaz Mostert. I think one of the other combinations that definitely has some redemption in sight, it's hard to go past that number 777, the Bend Motorsport Park entry. Yasser Shaheen, yes, he's a gentleman driver, very, very accomplished in Australian GT racing, probably got a fair few laps around his 7.7 GT course at their new track in South Australia. But I think David Reynolds, after that awkward cramping moment late into the Bathurst 1000 in 2018, uh, he and his normal enduro partner, Luke Yulden, um, definitely um, looking for uh, redemption in that car. So we'll talk a bit more about strategy a bit later on after we've gone through the driver combinations. But for some of those pro-am cars, it is going to be very much about how they manage the am driver Stint. Now, one team that doesn't have, or one manufacturer that doesn't have any such problems with that because they're running a pair of cars that are filled by pro drivers is the KCMG squad, which is running a pair of Nissan GTRs. He's back, Chio-san, Katsumasa Chio, who was so spectacular in the closing stages of the 2015 Bathurst 12-hour when he drove past people in a straight line to take victory after what was an epic finish. He's going to be joined by Oliver Jarvis, who we've seen on the Bathurst 12-hour podium before for Bentley, but he was also one of the drivers who led the Le Mans 24-hour outright in 2017, that extraordinary race where we saw an LMP2 car, the Jackie Chan car, lead the race outright for several hours. The third driver in that Nissan will be Eduardo Liberati. The second of the Nissans will be driven by an expat Aussie in Josh Burden. And uh, this is going to test my pronunciation skills. Sugio Matsuda and Alexandre Imperatori. Nicely done, Lachlan. Your uh, chance to call the 6 o'clock evening news is beckoning. I think uh, having two KCMG Pro Nissans on board this year, uh, definitely a turnaround from the last couple of years where we've either had only a single Nissan or no Nissans at all. So good to have those cars back. Uh, I think we're fairly confident these are the actual, the earlier specification Nissan GTRs. Um, we haven't seen any of the 2018 specification cars, which of course that debuted uh, through the course of 2018 in the Super GT and Blanc Pain Endurance seasons. Um, the commitment level from Nissan towards motorsport globally has been a little bit of a um, sticky or a uh, difficult topic to cover at the moment. We've seen a couple of their... You don't uh, know that GT- they polite there, Dave. <laughs> that was very <laughs> diplomatic. Their commitment to motorsport 
has been reduced significantly, I think, is what you were trying to say there. Yeah, they, they have made a big commitment to Formula E, um, Nissan taking over from Renault, obviously the Renault-Nissan alliance, of course, uh, in the headlines for other reasons we don't need to go into at the moment, um, but uh, good to have Nissan back. Uh, you wouldn't course, be referring uh, to one of their senior executives being in custody, would you? Lachlan, I would never mention it on radio. Uh, but I think it's good to have Nissan back. Chio San is definitely a fan favourite and, of course, uh, hugely popular for those efforts uh, moving the car from fourth to first in two laps uh, at the end of the 2015 edition. Um, great to have him back on Australian soil and great to have a two-car team from Asia, it should be pointed out, um, running a, an, an Asian manufacturer in the race. And so that brings us to our final manufacturer in Class A, and uh, another manufacturer that's synonymous with sports car racing all over the world, and that is Porsche. Four Porsche GT3Rs in the Bathurst 12-hour this year. We've got the Competition Motorsport, McElroy, racing entry for David Calvert-Jones, Kevin Estra, and Jackson Evans, last year's Porsche Carrera Cup Australian champion. We've got the Black Swan racing car, which finished on the outright podium last year. This year, it's been driven by Tim Pappas, Euroan Blekemolen, and Mark Lieb. Then two Earl Bamber Motorsport prepared Porsches, the first one being driven by Matt Campbell, Dennis Olsen and Dirk Werner, and the second one being driven by Roman Dumas, Matteo Jaminet and Sven Muller. And the Porsches last year, really, really good in terms of their fuel range, and had the race run all the way through to its conclusion, there were quite a few people up and down pit lane who predicted that the Porsches were going to be the only ones that would have actually made it to the finish without having to come in for a splash and dash. I think Porsche definitely, a bit like Bentley, this is one of the boxes that they have yet to tick. Of course, if we go back to the very early editions of the Bathurst 12-hour, uh, Porsche was very present here with the 968 Club Sport, if memory serves, Lachlan. But they haven't yet had a chance to be victorious overall in the event since it moved to a GT3 Formula in 2011. Um, I think definitely with the 2018 upgrade package on the car, um, which is some additional aerodynamic components, uh, the car's uh, performance was improved. We haven't yet seen the 991 Series 2 car, which of course we saw at Daytona just this weekend just passed. And I think Porsche has dumped in a bevy of factory uh, Porsche driver talent. Uh, local money would definitely be on the Matt Campbell, Dennis Olsen, Dirk Werner car. Matty Campbell definitely distinguished himself both in Carrera Cup here in Australia and in Porsche Super Cup. And then, of course, moved on to the uh, GTE uh, uh, AM category alongside Dempsey Proton Racing. Uh, David Calvert, Jones, Kevin Esther and Jackson Evans I think that's definitely a contender for the Pro-Am podium. Uh, the team from McElroy Racing prepare a really, really high-quality car. And that car was actually, I think, in the top five or six outright um, if we go back to the 2017 or 2018 Try edition second. of the race. Like, Try second yeah. outright that year. Yeah, and um, very, very impressive car, even in, in qualifying trim as well. So I think definitely really good to see Porsche come here. Interesting that... Earl Bamber, for, despite his myriad number of accomplishments in international GT and sports car prototype racing, won't be behind the wheel. He'll be uh, behind a laptop on the cans uh, calling the shots for the team. So a bit of a transition from Earl Bamber from being behind the wheel to be behind the laptop. 
Yeah, and I think he's looking forward to the challenge as well based on his comments in the lead-up to the race. So I think it's going to be a pretty big exercise running two cars, but if they perform well, I'm sure it'll be very satisfying for him. Now, they're not the only Porsches in the race as we move on to our lower classes because Class B is, in fact, the sole domain of Porsches and specifically Porsche 991 GT3 Cup cars. Just the three entries in Class B this year. Bit of a shame that the entry number's down a bit, but what it doesn't lack is quality because you've actually... It's going to be pretty hard to pick who the winner's going to be out of those three classes. In the number four car for Grove Racing, you have Stephen Grove, his son Brenton Grove, and also Ben Barker from the UK. In the number 23 car, it's the Team Carrera Cup Asia entry. You've got last year's Carrera Cup Asia champion, Chris Vanderdrift. You've got the driver who finished second in Carrera Cup Asia last year in Philip Hamprecht. You've got the driver who won the Pro-Am class in Carrera Cup Asia, which is Jinlong Bao from China. And then you've also got Paul Tresida, an Aussie who's done plenty of laps around Mount Panorama as well. So that car will be strong. And then the third of the cars in Class B, the Ash Seawood Motorsport entry, which is going to be driven by Danny Stutton, who won the Pro-Am class in Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge last year. Sam Fillmore, who's had plenty of endurance racing experience as well. And then Richard Musket, a former Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge and Australian GT champion here in Australia. So Class B might only have three cars, but boy, it's going to be competitive between them. Absolutely. That fight for the podium is going to be massive. Which one of them do you like, actually see because, coming out because on there's top? Only, there's like, because there's only three of them, Lachlan. Um, <laughs> look, very, very difficult to pick between them. Uh, I think definitely Porsche racing in Australia's uh, moved to the next level. We've seen a full grid of the 991 Series 2 cars uh, in the 2018 edition of the Wilson Security Porsche Carrera Cup. Um, we've seen... Uh, a lot of the 991 models now trickle down to the GT3 Cup Challenge into Class A, and a lot of the 997 models that we used to see in Class B have now filtered down to their second, third, fourth, and fifth owners, and now they're no longer starting to be competitive in GT3 Cup Challenge, so they tend to be run by a lot more amateur races. There's a lot of work involved converting the Sprint Specification Carrera Cup car into an endurance car, a lot of overhauls to the fuel system, uh, some upgrades to the braking system, um, and particularly uh, those 991 Series 2 cars because you can run the ABS system in them um, are much more suited to keeping up with the GT3 cars versus the 991s or the 997s, which although they have sequential transmissions, don't have traction control and they don't have ABS. And particularly for amateur drivers, that's something you've really got to watch for. You don't want to burn a tyre up too early in your stint. And so I know that the Ash Seawood Motorsport entry in particular, it's actually a completely separate car to any of the cars that get used in Carrera Cup, for example. It's a car that's been imported, in fact, from the US specifically for this event, and it does have those extra driver aids, particularly ABS. And I was having a chat to Richard Musket during the week, and he said that um, having ABS, even as a pro driver, it means that you can push a lot harder and with a lot more confidence at the start of the weekend. Absolutely. So, And again, before the advent of the GT3 formula, before there was any sort of uh, international standard category for a lot of this kind of racing, um, for a lot of these kind of races, the performance benchmark, and I don't just mean that in terms of how fast the cars were, but how much car you got for your money 
and how it was reliable, the benchmark was for 10 years prior to the GT3 formula was you go and buy a Porsche Cup car. It was the performance standard in the ALMS, the ELMS, uh, all sorts of GT championships around the world. Porsche has a massive customer support organization behind the scenes. Um, it's a massive part of their marketing program and they have a pyramid structure. So it starts from the car clubs, uh, moves into a series like the Porsche 944 Challenge, GT3 Cup Challenge, Carrera Cups, Porsche Super Cup, and then categories for their GT3R as well as their um, GT RSR, GT3 RSR in things like uh, the uh, Le Mans Series, uh, European Le Mans Series, Asian Le Mans Series, uh, the IMSA Series as well as the World Endurance Championship. So Porsche are a manufacturer of very committed, committed sports car racing and developing drivers and build them up. That's why we see cars with uh, former champions on board and of course those champions have gone on to do great things overseas. So looking forward to what should be a cracker contest in Class B between those three Porsches. Class C is the domain of GT4 cars and we've got a BMW of Darren Jorgensen, Brett Strom and Jared McLeod. Now the interesting story around this car is that Jorgensen and Strom both competed in the 12-hour last year. They enjoyed it so much that they came back to do the 6-hour production car race as well. Then we've got some KTMs, so three of them in fact, Justin McMillan, Glenn Wood, Dean Lilly and Pete Mage will share one of the KTMs. In at the second of the KTMs we have David Crampton, Trent Harrison, Tim Macro, the former Australian Formula 3 champ and Caitlin Wood who's been living over in the UK and doing driver tr- training for the last 12 months or so. The third of the KTMs being driven by Dean Kutsamidis, Jake Parsons and another former Australian Formula 3 champion in James Winslow. Now, the other cars that are in Class C, there's a pair of Ginettas. The full driver lineup for the Ginettas yet to be confirmed. However, I do know that Brad Schumacher, the Bathurst resident, will be one of the drivers in one of them. Well, he's certainly going to, not going to be tackling the 12-hour in the Lotus that got no. absolutely obliterated um, in, a, in, a, in a mechanical failure accident heading up towards uh, Griffin's Bend. Uh, the onboard footage of that is massively scary. Um, he, in the Challenge Bathurst event, he was lapping in very competitive GT4 times in a GT4 specification Lotus, but um, I, I'm amazed that he's back together and he's, he's throwing himself into a, um, into a Janetta so quickly after that massive accident, so full credit to Brad. Uh, I think GT4 despite the fact that it's really booming overseas, hasn't quite clicked in Australia. There's not really that critical mass of cars yet. Um, I think particularly once we start to get the trickle in of the second generation of GT4 cars, we know that there's the new generation Mustang GT4 in Australia that's currently being serviced by Multimatic, uh, the Mercedes AMG GT4, as well as the Audi R8 uh, GT4 as well. I think once we start to see some of those uh, turning up at some events, I think we'll start to see more cars turn up. But it's a really good category for the amateur drivers and particularly the budget spend for the car in terms of the maintenance, the preparation, the tyre bill is nowhere near that what you'd be spending on a GT3 car. These are cars that can effectively be maintained by a very small group of people and the uh, the lighting program by the manufacturers is excellent. So BMW's got a good customer service program in place, as does Janetta, as does KDM. And, of course, all the other manufacturers I've mentioned as well. Really looking forward to seeing GT4 class grow because I think that's where we would start to see some transition for the amateurs into GT4 as 
the GU3 field starts to become more and more professional. Who's your tip for the GC4 class? Well, as we saw last year, I again, I, I don't want to. I really don't want to commit to saying who my favourite is until I see some running and see what the cars are like in terms of their BOP uh, and their driver rankings. Uh, in terms of their driver performance. But we saw last year that the M4 was the car to have in GT4. Mm. And I think the Jorgensen, Strom, and the Cloud car, they were very competitive in Dubai until they had uh, some contact and suspension failure. They've got a lot of miles in that car. They've actually got two or I think even possibly three cars situated around the world. They've got one car here in Australia. They've got another one they've been doing a lot of running in the US with. Uh, so they come uh, fresh from Dubai. They've only driven the car a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they'll be on a Pirelli tyre as opposed to a hand-cooked tyre. Uh, but I think apart from that, uh, my money would be on them to take out Class C. Again, providing that they can stay out of trouble. We did see some cars in Class C, in a GD4, uh, come into contact with the walls or some other cars and get taken out of contention uh, despite the fact they were running quite well. And so that brings us to our final class, which is Class I, the Invitational class. And this year, the I class consists entirely of Mark cars. Now, these cars were developed a few years back when Ryan McLeod from Race for Industries identified the market for some cars that could be built for long-distance endurance races, particularly in series like the Creventic series, where you've got invitational classes such as the SPX class, and he saw an opportunity to build some cars, put V8 engines in them, basically over-engineer them, and come up with packages that were going to be strong and reliable for long-distance racing, if not necessarily quite with the outright speed of the GT3 cars. So we've got a couple of the Mark II Mustangs, which run the 5.2-litre Coyote Ford V8 engine. We've also got a couple of the Mark I Ford Focuses, which run the smaller 5-litre Ford Coyote engine. In the Mark II Mustangs, we have Adam Hargraves, Daniel Gillison, and Steve Owen. We also have Keith Kasulki, Paul Morris, and the former Indian champ car racer Paul Tracy, then in the Mark I cars, Jason Busk and Jeff Taunton, they will be joined by recently announced Dunlop Super 2 driver for Gary Rogers Motorsport, Dylan O'Keefe. And then the second of the Mark I cars, Hadrian Morale, he'll be joined by Einar Thorson and Matthias Backer. Yeah, I think uh, the emotional money would be on the Kasuki, Morris and Tracy. Uh, again, Paul Morris... Uh, one of the only drivers to ever win the Bathurst 12 hour, the Bathurst 6 hour, and the Bathurst 1000. I believe the he may only. be the, on- the, the only, only driver. Yep. Um, again, Paul Tracy, I'm not sure that the sensors who will be covering the Channel 7 broadcast are aware just how much usage of the beeping function they're going to need when they stick a microphone in front of those two. Um, but Keith Kasuki, as we know, uh, had a, a very nasty fire several years ago uh, driving a, another GD3 car at a Phillip Island test session. Um, massive recovery process, um, but great to see him back behind the wheel and very competitive. He's run one of those cars in a couple of invitational events at Bathurst the last few years. Um, I think the Mark II is allowed to run to a lower minimum lap time than the Mark I car, so automatically you'd say it's between the two Mark II V8s. Um, and... 
my my heart certainly says I want to see the Kasuki Morrison Tracy car do really really well. Um, again, as you say, over-engineered cars. Um, they can go uh, two 24-hour races without an engine rebuild, and all they do in between them is drain the oil and check the valve uh, clearances. Uh, really over-engineered cars. Basically, a, uh, a much more simplified and, and uh, less expensive version of a, of a current car, the future supercar. Shares a lot of the same architecture from Pace Innovation. So uh, really good to see Australian product taking on the world. They've had uh, massive interest in the cars when they've debuted them overseas, but good to get them back on Aussie soil and uh, punching away at Mount Panorama as they were engineered to do. So the heart says that car, but my head actually says it'll be the other Mark II Mustang of Adam Hargraves, Daniel Gillison and Steve Owen that might just get home for the win in Class I. Steve Owen, we know that he's tremendously fast behind the wheel with all different types of cars. And Daniel Gillison, a very underrated but also very talented driver who we saw do very well driving in the Dunlop series for Greg Murphy Racing back in 2011. So my money is on that Mark II car, the number 20 entry. And that, Dave, wraps up our analysis of all of the cars in the field, which in terms of total time for the podcast, we've managed to do it in an hour and 12 minutes. So we're actually running pretty much to schedule. Will this be a new podcast record if we do if we get it done in under 90 minutes? That's what I'm aiming for. I'd like to get it done in under 90 minutes because that means that people who are driving up to Bathurst from Sydney, for example, will also have time to listen to the excellent Midweek Motorsport podcast produced by Radio Le Mans, which we strongly encourage you all to listen to. So, on that note... We'll go for another break here on the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview. When we come back, we're going to talk some of the strategic aspects of the race. Hope you stay with us. Thanks for downloading the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast. For more in-depth analysis of the Aussie motorsports scene, check out cfmedia.com.au. Hi, I'm Cameron Hill, and you're listening to the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview. Heading for the Checkered Flag on this special Bathurst 12-hour preview edition of Checkered Flag Chat. And let's have a look at some of the strategic aspects of the Bathurst 12-hour because, as with any endurance race, strategy is going to be a big talking point. And Dave touched before on the fact that uh, there's different cars that are going to have different strengths and weaknesses in different parts of the circuit depending on their balance of performance. One of the things we haven't touched on yet is fuel range and the fact that different cars might be able to do different numbers of laps on a tank of fuel. Last year, we saw that the Porsches had really, really good fuel range. In fact, they went in some of their stints over 40 laps, up to 43. In fact, the winning Audi completed a maximum stint of 36 laps. The second place Mercedes in last year's race only managed to do 33 laps during its longest stint. So depending on when safety cars fall... Fuel range could be important, particularly if we get a safety car that's right in that awkward zone near the end of the race. Do you come in? Do you have to stay out? Do you do a splash and dash? And we've seen it in the Bathurst 1000. And uh, last year, had we not had that red flag right at the end, we might have had that sort of situation in the 12-hour as well, where we could have had cars running out of fuel on the last lap within sight of the flag. I think it's important to point out for... Uh, viewers who perhaps most of their Bathurst association has been with uh, production cars or with supercars, 
Um, the cars that you'll see running out in the Bathurst 12-hour will either be running uh, on 98-octane, essentially the same kind of fuel you could buy at the service station, or they'll be running on an ELF LMS. So race fuels is the control fuel supplier. Um, the ELF LMS is 102-octane, very high oxygenation, very stringently produced fuel by ELF. Um, so the cars, because they're running, they're not running on the E85, you'll have seen them run in supercars, they can get more mileage per litre than a supercar can. Also factor in that the engines are a little bit more efficient in terms of being multi-valve and later generation power plants. They're not making as much horsepower as a supercar. Supercar, some in the vicinity of 650. Most of these GD3 cars produce somewhere between 500 to 550 horsepower, depending upon the uh, category restrictions that are in place. But they're also much more efficient in terms of how they cut through the air aerodynamically and how they produce lap time. So um, one of the things that they do with balance of performance is they look at the total fuel system capacity and then they will try to balance that out with displacement blocks that said, okay, your car could hold a maximum theoretical capacity of 110 litres. We'd like you to take that down to 105. And then they also look at the hose that the fuel will go into the car with and they'll change the size of the restriction to change the flow rate of that fuel into the tank. What they're trying to do with this is that regardless of the size of the engine and the amount of fuel that it uses, they want to try to get the cars as close as possible, as we say, it's a balance, not parity, a balance, get them balanced as close as possible on a fuel stint, so both the amount of laps they can do on that stint, but also how long it takes them in the pit stop to fill that tank back up again and get the car serviced. Because unlike supercars, where you can uh, change the tyres, cut half a front guard off, uh, clear the radiator out with, with compressed air, fill the uh, driver's drink bottle and the cool suit system and uh, make a uh, rear spring adjustment all while you're putting E85 fuel into the 108 litre fuel cell in a supercar, that's very much not the case in sports car pit stops Lachlan. No, you have to do the refueling separately to all of the other work. The only thing that you can do while you're refueling, in fact, is a driver change. All of the other work, including changing tyres, can only be done once the refueling part of the pit stop has been completed. So what that means is that you can actually save time in a refueling stop by choosing not to change tyres. And what we have seen at the Bathurst 12-hour is that teams might try and double or even triple stint a set of tyres Towards the end, of course, they do want to try and be on a fresh set of tyres. And the other thing that we've seen teams do in the past, most notably in 2014, when we saw the Maximilian Book car go for this strategy, is changing brake pads to try and have nice fresh brakes. But it's that balancing act, isn't it? How much time do you give up in the pits to try and give yourself a faster race car on the track? And a lot of that will be determined based on if you're taking your pit stop under safety car or if you have to take it under green flag conditions because obviously doing more work on the car under a safety car costs you less than if you have to try and do it under green racing. Absolutely. And the other thing to remember is that unlike a supercar's pit stop where you can have, uh, I believe it's eight or nine people across the line, uh, in a GT pit stop, there's a lot less people going across the line, a lot fewer air guns being used and anything more than... You know, cleaning the car, um, filling up the drink bottles and changing tyres and a few other minor operations, every other part of the uh, pit stop or the repair to the vehicle 
uh, has to take place in the garage. So whenever you see a car come in requiring some more major repairs, the first thing they'll do is they'll put fuel into it and then they'll wheel it into the garage. Another thing that we need to talk about on the subject of strategy is driving times. What's the longest time that you've ever done during a stint in a race car, Dave? Uh, I think it was probably approaching uh, two and a bit hours uh, when I was uh, competing in uh, a BMW E30 racing car in uh, one of the editions of the Wakefield 300. Yeah, so mine was about two and a half hours, I think, which was actually in a race that you were driving with me in, which was the 24 hours of Le Mans back in 2016 in a Hyundai XL. And you and I both know that particularly when you're in a race where you've got a lot of traffic, as both the Wakefield 300 and the 24 hours of Le Mans were, it gets very mentally draining when you are in the car for over two hours. Now, the rules for the Bathurst 12-hour is the maximum time that any driver can do in a single stint is three hours, and uh, for a three-driver team, it's a maximum of 280 minutes total. For a four-driver team, a maximum of 240 minutes total. But the other key thing there is that after a driver has completed a stint, they have to serve a minimum one-hour rest period before they can get back into the car. The other thing to remember, Lachlan, is that any team that is any team in Class A that is using a bronze-rated driver, so that'll be the, the cars in Pro-Am and Am, the bronze drivers have a minimum driving time requirement of 100 minutes. So if you're in a car that's got uh, three or four drivers uh, and you've got a, a bronze, so a gentleman or a non-professional driver, it's how do you manage getting the minimum driving time out of the way whilst also respecting the maximum driving time that your pros uh, can drive based on how many of them are in the car. Of course, the main thing to remember is, is that the driving time commences when the car crosses the pit exit line and when it drives in to uh, the pit entry line. So the time in the pits doesn't count. So you have to uh, start your stopwatch or stop your start watch um, at certain points when the car leaves the field. As we've seen in the past, there are penalties for cars that exceed uh, or, or go under um, the driving time requirements. Uh, for the first judged breach, uh, it's about a 30 second penalty um, up to five minutes, and after that, it's at the discretion of the stewards. And we've seen uh, a lot of, um, even if we go back to the uh, the super touring era of the Bathurst 1000, we've seen race winners scrubbed for drivers spending too much time in the car. And a couple of points on that. So if you've got a three-driver pro-am team, the unseated or the bronze driver actually has to do 160 minutes because otherwise the other two drivers would exceed their maximum 280 minutes so it's two hours and 40 minutes that your unseated driver has to spend in the car if you're a three driver pro-am team and touching on the subject of exceeding driving times often we've seen Dave that that's happened if there's a team that's cutting it really fine and a safety car comes out at the wrong moment and the car gets trapped on the circuit and can't get into the pits quickly enough that's often a situation where we've seen teams pinged for driving time infringement. Absolutely. So it's one of the myriad things that you've got to watch for. Um, you've got to clock how much time your driver's been in the car. And of course, as you mentioned, if you get your amateur driver's time out of the way and you're working off your two professionals, you've got to make sure that uh, that your driver spends as much time out of the car as possible um, so that they're qualified as refreshed, 
So if for whatever reason you have to put them back in the car, um, that you've satisfied that uh, out of the, the one-hour rest time requirement as well. So, Dave, you and I, for argument's sake, we're both ranked as bronze drivers. Actually, in reality, we're probably not even that good. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that we're in a pro-am team and we can have our choice of gun co-drivers. When would you want to do your stint as the bronze driver? Would you want to try and get it out of the way fairly early on in the race, or would you try and save yourself up for a bit later on? How do you think, or what do you think is the best way of managing the strategy to get that bronze driver minimum stint out of the way? Uh, Get it out of the way early, but not at a high risk period. So we've seen with the Bathurst 12-hour, because the race starts in the dark and races through the dawn, uh, that's definitely the time where you want the pro driver that's got a lot of experience driving at night or at least hopefully some <laughs> uh, practice driving at night, uh, particularly when the traffic is fairly busy and hectic and the risk level is quite high. You want to get the bronze driver time out of the way early because if you use your pro driver time early and there's a lot of safety cars, uh, that, that doesn't count for anything because as soon as the safety car comes out, it backs you back up again. Any advantage that you gain with a pro driver and their speed disappears when a safety car comes out. Whereas if you can use your amateur driver time, at least stay on the lead lap for your class or your category, uh, if you get a safety car, you get to make up that time for free as opposed to losing an advantage that your pro driver accrued for you. So I'd say you probably want to run a pro driver for the first, possibly even second fuel stint in the race just so that we get past the the darkness and the dawn. The car's running well. If they need to make any adjustments to it, they can, and then they can feed that information to the, uh, the amateur driver and get one or even both of the amateur drivers out of the way early, uh, maybe run them on one stint, maybe double stint a set of tyres, so they've got some consistency in terms of understanding the grip level in that set of tyres, and then once they're done, park them in the garage and let them enjoy the experience of watching professionals rang their car around the mountain. You definitely want your best driver in the car late in the day. So coming up to sort of 2.30, 3 o'clock when we've got uh, three or so hours, so a stint, stint to two stints left in the race, that's when you want to have the best driver in the car, the freshest tyres, and you want to fuel the thing to be just coughing out of fuel when it crosses the control line after uh, 12 hours. Sounds perfect. When are you going to add Bathurst 12-hour team manager to all of the other things that you've done in motorsport, Dave? I'll leave it to the professionals, Lachlan, as I would suggest you do too. So key points for the 2019 Bathurst 12-hour. No major changes to the rules or formats for previous years, except for the fact that it has been expanded to a four-day event for this year. We have added an extra support category to the schedule as well. Once again, it's being managed by the team at Supercars. Channel 7 will be broadcasting it live on Sunday. We've got the Radio Le Mans duo of John Hindorf and Johnny Palmer back in the commentary box alongside Richard Crail. We'll have Chad Nail on and Shay Adam bringing us updates from the pits as well. For the support categories, Formula Ford back on the mountain. It's the 50th anniversary of Formula Ford in Australia, and they've got a big 55-car field. Also got the combined sedans, the Radical Australia Cup, and Group S for historic production sports cars. All right, Dave, time to put our money where our mouth is and put in our fearless predictions, and I'm talking here about outright results. Your top three, please. Uh, it's really, really tough, Lachlan. It is 
possibly the toughest choice for a top three. I'm not going to give them to you in any particular order, but I have to say that uh, the number 22 Audi Sport Team Valvoline Audi, that's the Garth Tander, Kelvin Vanderlinder and Frederick Verwish entry. The Team Schnitzer BMW M6 of Chas Mostert, Augusto Farfus and Martin Tomczyk. And of course the number 888 Mercedes AMG of Craig Lowndes, Jamie Winkup and Shane Van Gisbergen. And my Smokey, because you never doubt the boys from Bentley, would be uh, one of one of either of the uh, Bentley Team M Sport cars. Yeah, I'm actually going to tip one of the Bentleys to be on the podium. I think maybe the Vincent Abril, Andy Suchek and Maxim Sule car might finish up on the podium. I just get the feeling that they're due for a bit of luck. I'm going to go for one of the Mercedes, but not the one that everybody's talking about. I'm actually going to tip the Maximilian Book, Raffaele Marcello and Maximilian Gortz entry the Grupp M racing entry, the triple nine car to be on the podium. And I think there will be an Audi on the podium as well, but I don't think it'll be the Tander car. I think it'll be Haasa, Mies and Winklehock. So that's my fearless predictions for the 12-hour. Who, who's your Smokey, Lachlan? Who's your Smokey that you, you might not expect them to put in a good performance, but they'll surprise you in the end? Well, we haven't talked about... Neither of us have tipped any of the Porsches, so... I am going to tip one of the Porsches, and I think it might be one of the Pro-Am cars. Um, and I'm just thinking maybe the David Calvert-Jones, Kevin Estra, and Jackson Evans car might just... They've had good results in the past. If they can get their strategy right, they're my smoking. Can I uh, make another fearless prediction, Lachlan? Yep. I think what you'll see, particularly the direction from race control and from the organisers, and everyone will probably have this drummed into them at the driver's briefing, is target 300. The, we want to break 300 laps for this race. We want to get past uh, the previous race lap record of 297 laps. I don't think we could go quite so far as making it to uh, 322 laps, which would be two Bathurst 1000s, because that would be like running a Bathurst 1000 under six hours, and we know how hard supercars tried to get to that one. Um, I think definitely target 300 um, for the number of laps. Weather permitting, it's going to be a little bit cooler. Um, we have experienced a lot of heat waves in Australia recently. Uh, the forecast for the weekend, particularly Saturday, Sunday, looks like it's going to be not too hot, so mid to high 20s uh, for race day. Perhaps a little bit of weather for uh, practice and qualifying, particularly the support category action on Thursday. But uh, I think definitely target 300 for the Sunday at Bathurst. And possibly, just possibly, a bit of rain on Sunday afternoon as well, which would just spice things up a bit too. Just a little bit, Lachlan, just a little bit. Wouldn't be Bathurst without some weather creeping into the equation at one stage or another. It's the mountain. Anything can happen. You can have the best laid plans and a kangaroo can jump out in front of you and ruin your race in the blink of an eye. All right, well, I think that uh, just about wraps up this preview. We've just gone over the 90-minute mark. I think we're up to 91 minutes for this oh, we'll have to uh, We'll have to report to race control so we can have our um, receive our penalty for running within five minutes of our allotted driver time. 
All right, good stuff, Dave. Looking forward to seeing you up there as part of the Team Medical Australia crew. I'm looking forward to being back behind the microphone for all of the support racing action across the weekend as well. Thank you for downloading this podcast. On behalf of Dave Stilwell, this is Lockie Mansell signing off. See you trackside at Mount Panorama.